0: environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This this is ECOCAST. Ecocast. Hello and welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer.
1: And I am Brandon Gollm.
0: So today's guests are Sarah Jaquette-Ray and Stephen Sipperstein. Sarah Jaquette-Ray is a professor at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California, where she also leads the Environmental Studies BA program. She has been an active member of ASLI since 2005, including terms as Graduate Student Liaison and then as Vice President. She has been working on two projects to develop tools for environmental educators. Firstly, a workshop and soon-to-be online resource called Existential Toolkit for Climate Educators, which was initially sponsored by the Rachel Carson Center in Munich. And secondly, a digital platform called NX Terra, transformative education for climate action, where she and Nicole Seymour have collated teaching resources on climate and emotion. Her most recent book is A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet, and that was published this year. Stephen Sipperstein lives at the Environmental Immersion Programme at Choke Rosemary Hall in Connecticut, where he teaches courses in environmental humanities and interdisciplinary environmental research methods, and directs the school's writing centre. His research focuses on developing effective approaches to interdisciplinary climate change education, and he co-edited the 2016 book Teaching Climate Change in the Humanities. He co-directs the Environmental Literature Institute, a summer program for secondary and higher education teachers, and is currently launching a regional nonprofit, the Center for Climate Education, which provides pedagogical consulting, training and mentoring for students, teachers and schools. And Stephen is also a published poet and photographer. So welcome Sarah and Stephen, and thanks very much for coming on the show.: Thanks, it's my pleasure. this is exciting.
2: Thank you so much. this is great
1: yeah yeah this is this is a, a, a topic that is very very near and dear to my heart it's actually this is a topic that is largely responsible for um the formation of this podcast because at the last asley conference um I put together uh, a panel on um uh, Pedagogical activism, environmental activism, uh, and we recorded it as a podcast, and, and that kind of um, is where where this developed out of. So um, yeah, so this is something that I'm I'm very very excited to to talk to both you about today.
0: Excellent. Okay, so let's get into root words. Um, and so since the focus of today's episode is um, the teaching or pedagogy of climate change, uh, today's root word is pedagogy or pedagogue. Um, And these terms come from the Greek, pedo meaning child, and agogic meaning leading. So pedagogy is the practice of leading the young. Interestingly, however, the ancient Greek pedagogues were not, in fact, the teachers. The very first pedagogues were the slaves who took children to and from school, those who literally led the young. It was in the Greek Hellenistic period that the meaning developed into the sense of a source of instruction or guidance and in Latin came to refer to a teacher or schoolmaster. Similarly, the word educate uh, comes from the Latin meaning to lead as well. So both these words posit the pedagogue, teacher or educator in a position of authority. To lead is to know the way, to be able to guide one's students on the right path. But, as anyone who has spent time teaching will know, it's not always such a one-way process. Often one's students end up leading the way, or they discover new and unexpected ways that you hadn't seen before. And never has this been more apparent than in the context of catastrophic climate change. The IPCC has now presided over three decades of governmental efforts to do something about the climate crisis during which time greenhouse gas emissions have continued to rise, along with the global temperature and sea levels. Meanwhile, over the past couple of years, the youth climate movement, movement, spearheaded by a resolute Greta Thunberg, has begun to demand the radical change that should have come so long ago. In this context, it is not the old and experienced that are leading the youth, but rather the other way around so Sarah and Stephen, I want to begin by asking you to reflect a little bit on this notion of of leading with regards to teaching climate change. Is it teachers who are in the lead, or do we need a more collaborative notion of pedagogy when it comes to these issues?
2: Thanks, Gemma. I love that that those etymologies they're they're so thought provoking um, and I, I I wasn't familiar with the that rich history of pedagogy and the pedagogue, but I do think that that it's about collaboration, and uh, for me, it's about co-creating the the learning experience, co-creating with with students and potentially with others at at the institution where I work, um, and that you know I've always sort of when you were explaining that I was thinking back to. My first experience is actually working with um, teenagers, uh, which was not working teaching at a high school, but was leading uh, backpacking trips uh, in various mm-hmm. wilderness areas. And and really, it's about creating group dynamics that are collaborative, and so that the we're all involved in decision making processes. You know, to keep the group safe in the context of of being out in the wilderness, but I think that's true in the classroom as well of, of inviting students in to the process of establishing the learning space, creating the conditions in which the learning space evolves, setting the outcomes, you know, and that, you know, for me, it, it it has, can be about content. And it can be about what class looks like and what we do together and allowing students to to lead in in pursuing areas of inquiry that matter to them.
3: Yeah, and I would add, too, that one of the ways that I think that youth are leading in a, in a way that's different than anything I've ever seen before as a teacher is that the youth movement is um rhetorically ad- have as a rhetorical advantage of the position of kind of moral righteousness as being young, which is why I think Greta Thunberg can say the things that other people have been saying for a long time, but ha- have more of a effect um, on a different generation of people. And I think also I've noticed in teaching that in teaching environmental studies classes, I felt like I was teaching students about the intersections between social justice and environmental issues, but mm-hmm. now I feel like the other way around is happening. They're coming in, they already know it, and they're the ones holding the institution and their environmental science faculty and all of their other teachers accountable for that, for that awareness of structural inequality being connected to environmental degradation as well. So... The youth are leading the way on the movement on the social movement side. The youth are leading the way in education and pedagogy, and I think what it's having me do is rethink the definition of leadership in in the first place. And I'm I was really chewing on your definition, Gemma, of the etymology of the word. And this you kept saying the word lead, lead, lead. And I've been going through a teacher training on to do a um, to. Launch uh, a program called the Student Leadership Institute for Climate Resilience. That's something that's happening on the University of California, Irvine, that they're scaling out to all UC and CSU faculty, um, Cal State faculty who are who have, are interested in this and I've done the regular training, but now we're they're doing the online version and this notion of leadership keeps coming up. And I realize that I never really thought of myself as a leader. And I think a lot of my students don't think of themselves as leaders. And I think it, it begs us to rethink what we, what we mean as leaders and mm-hmm. to go back to Steven's notion of co-creating a, a teacher creates a conditions for students to, to, create, to to do what they need to do. And that is also a form of leadership too. So I think there are things that teachers need to do to lead. But if we think differently about what that leading looks like and means, because I think in our dominant society, we have such a uh, power down top down notion of leadership, and I don't think that's what young people think of as leadership yeah,
1: absolutely can you um either of you speak a little bit maybe more to um, some of the the kind of specific or concrete ways that you're allowing your students to um, build this experience or collaborate uh, with you or with each other or to take on these leadership roles um whether it's in the classroom or or at the university or in their communities
2: well um You know, one example that comes to mind. I teach. uh, I've taught it two times now. um, A multidisciplinary climate change course. It doesn't really even exist in any department, um, so it doesn't have any disciplinary fidelity. There isn't any content I have to cover, Um, and I've I've discovered that that approach an approach that has worked is really, you know, starting with action from the beginning of the term. You know, in the past. I've taught kind of climate change courses as, okay, let's learn the science, let's learn the causes, let's learn the impacts. Oh, and here are, here's some solutions or like, let's end with some hope. Right. And, and I've totally given up that model. And now it's like, we, <laughs> we start with, with the action. And actually, the first thing I do, you know, Sarah was, was mentioning Greta and, and, the other youth activists around the world is we start by, by researching youth activists and learning about what they're doing. And mm-hmm. that's the beginning of, of the term. And then as we progress, students work together collaboratively to decide a social action project that we are going to take as a class. And to facilitate that, I teach them, you know, community building processes. I teach them about, consensus decision making you know we work together on, on creating class norms and then once we have a vision of what we want to do together then they figure out okay what do we need to know what do, what skills do we need to know and what content do we need to know to be able to carry this out successfully and then I step in and say okay here are some here are some ideas then here's what we can do to get us there um, but it's really letting them set the intention of what they want the outcome of, of the class to be.
3: Yeah. And, and I, and one example of an exercise I do is I do a a change vision action exercise where I have students visualize what they want their future to look like. And then think about kind of, we sort of sit down for 10 minutes and close our eyes if we can, and kind of visualize this and think about what role they might've played in this. And if they imagine maybe a cousin or a nephew or a kid or a child in the future thanking them for their role in making this world happen, what is it that they're thanking them for? And this kind of gets to their mm. inner, inner examination of themselves as to what it is that, what is it that they love to do, what, really, what they really care about. Because I think a lot of students think that they ought to be certain things that the, the only way that they're going to make social change happen is if they're these particular kinds of careers or, or, or even just a very narrow definition of what activism is. And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of young people are going to intervene in social change in a wide variety of ways that may not look to them until they have that investigation as a form of social change. And then from there, we say, OK, where are the very next steps you would need to take in order to become that person who gets thanked 20 years down the line for Putting into motion this new world that we're, we're all being so happy about, that we're going to be thriving in sometime in the future. And it, this, this exercise has multiple effects. One is that it's completely radical for young people to think about a world that they desire rather than fear. And that's mm-hmm. the first thing that we're like blowing their minds. I can't, the first time I did the exercise, the students couldn't actually envision that future because they, it's too scary. And the notion of looking forward to something is just so radical. And I think young people still have that problem, and that's that's a lot. To that's the fault of folks in my generation teaching doom and gloom, right? Um, and so that has that effect, and it also has the effect of having young people take immediate action right away and not think that this is something that's going to happen after they graduate or that they're too small to make an impact. It counters a lot of their powerlessness. It has a sense of like, oh, I, I know what's my where my beacon is inside of me, and I'm just going to keep making small steps to get there. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be a process. And I think there's a lot of sense of urgency and impatience around having this change happen. Students have a hard time just sitting in the classroom to even do this work. And um, it kind of slows them down a bit and says, okay, this is going to be one foot in front of the other kind of thing, and I can do that. Let's just get started. Let's do it. Um, so that's an exercise I do. Hmm.
0: And with that, I mean, you, you touched a little bit on kind of, like, different emotions that that come up of, you know, fear and hope. Like, are, do you find that um, there's also kind of anger there at inheriting this world of, of the kind of, you know, Greta, how dare you... Uh, Ilk Is that something that you work with in the classroom or kind of, yeah, is it, does it feel more hopeful and practical because they're doing something or, or how does that play out?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think anger is a really generative, important emotion. And um, there's, there's all kinds of kind of race, gender, sexuality, class, um, you know, ways to understand how anger works in our society, um, especially in a social movement. Uh, my feeling is that when some when students come in angry, um, then my immediate response, because my personal response to anger is that it freaks me out, right? I'm, I think even righteous anger, I get kind of freaked out. I'm like no anger. Um, so as a teacher, I have to take a, I have to do some of my own work to, to deal with how to how to have anger in the classroom. But mm. ultimately, anger the flip side of anger is that we fear something that we love is threatened, and that we're being we want to protect something. And so I try to gently um, do the kind of emotional work with students that says, okay, well, let's, in in addition to our anger, what is it that we're afraid is being threatened and what are steps we can take to protect that? Because that is the action and hope that then assuages the anger and turns that anger into something that students feel like they can um, do something about it.
1: That's right. So I'm, this is maybe jumping ahead a little bit. I I think I was envisioning this maybe question coming up a little bit later on. Um, but I, I'm wondering how you handle perhaps, um, the reluctant students, um, like the stu- so the students that are coming into the classroom and maybe don't think climate change is a big deal. Don't think climate change is, is that much of a threat? Um, you know, cause it's so far, I feel like we're talking about those students who are already passionate about it, who have, who have thought about it, who are, you know, have, are thinking about how fearful they are for their future and, you know, are relieved to feel that they can have some hope. Um, but what about those students that are just like, eh, whatever it is, what it is, right? How are we, how are you, um, you know, taking steps to engage with them um, to at least, you know, even if we're not completely changing their mind or anything like that, but at least getting them to consider um, these things and to, to, uh, you know, maybe broaden that perspective a little bit.
2: I, I want to, I'll start by prefacing that I have not taught those students I, I don't want to lump them in all together, because I think it's important to push on that term reluctant and and think about what is it that they're reluctant to engage in, mm-hmm. or or maybe what is it that they're resistant to if it the reluctance is actually resistance. Um, but I will say that I have not taught reluctant students since I taught at the University of Oregon. <laughs> um, and that is a privilege i'm I'm incredibly grateful for that the program I teach in is self-selecting. These are students who are choosing to come live for a year at an environmental immersion program where all their classes are environmentally focused, and we're living together. And I mean, in many ways, it's a little bit of a micro utopia. There are problems to it, but uh... and then, for instance, the climate change course I mentioned a moment ago; those are students who are all self select into it. And so, I'm privileged to be able to have bypassed that kind of engaging with reluctant students. I do think, though, that even for all students that multiple parts of learning about climate change, meaning like delving into the intellectual and emotional truths, resonances of being complicit in these systems of modernity that are causing this crisis and that there, it can be so disorienting, right. Mm. And, and, and that's so heavy, and so I think maybe some of the reluctance, the resistance comes from not wanting to engage emotionally, defense, emotional defense mechanisms. Absolutely. You know, I'll also say something I've discovered at at Cho teaching at the high school level, and students tell me this all the time, is like, we don't need adults to tell us that climate change is a problem. Mm. We know. We know it. Right, like we hear about it, we tell, you, talk to each other about it all the time, and so that that hearing that over and over again has changed my my how I frame thinking about students and their relationship to climate change coming into my classes. I don't know, Sarah, if you you have know, seen something Steva, like that? Or,
3: I was trying to I was trying to point that one to you, Stephen, because I was like, oh yeah, my students aren't those students because they're, they're <laughs> self selected as you know, they're, they are passionate about environmental problems and they want to find their people, you know? Um, so I don't have a whole lot of reluctant students. The the reluctance I find is among students who have to deal with white fragility. And so a lot of white Mm. environmental students, environmental studies students have not reckoned with their race and their privilege. And that is increasingly changing because my my students are becoming more and more diverse because increasingly the movement is becoming more diverse, right? So the effect of that demographic in my classes is changing, but for a long time, the issue, the resistance was to, um, oh, I thought I was a good person trying to go out and save the planet and I love the polar bears and the panda bears, but in fact, these are just, um, this is just evidence of my privilege and I have to reckon with that. And what about pollution? And what about the ways that I contribute to environmental injustice? That was where the resistance was in my experience. But I wanted to point something that Steven just said made me think also that generally, if you look at the data on the generations, the generation Z or younger generations are, the younger generation is overwhelmingly statistically concerned around climate change. And so we're looking forward to a a change in how climate change um, is, climate change is not going to be partisan the way it has been in the past. And so we, like Stephen saying, it's shifting the way he does things. If we go about teaching our students as if they are reflections of the older generations and the older partisans partisan divides around climate change, we are doing them a great disservice. Younger, in fact, we're actually probably adding to the divides because younger Republicans and younger conservative people are really concerned about climate change. And there's some really great data to back that up. So I think we need to anticipate that this is not a partisan thing. We need to use different tools. The rhetoric, the rhetorical strategies are not going to be the same for the next generation. Um, It's a different demographic.
0: Hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: I'll just, Um, can I, can I echo just something, Sarah, you just said, uh, which is I found that the, the material that students resist the most and, and I only recently started teaching a lot of this, maybe because it's only recently been appearing, but, but essays and articles about the connections between white supremacy and climate chaos, climate change. And that, that is the material that, that students are really resistant to, as well as essays that, or, or texts that push back on the individualization of responsibility. And I think that, mm. resistant com- that resistance comes from students being raised in a culture where they think it's all about individual solutions. And so the notion of collective problem solving, the notion that the public sphere can be a site, a place to solve problems together, mm. is just so foreign that it's not that they're resistant to it and that they don't want to engage in it. It's like they don't know how to.
1: Mm.
0: Hey. And is that is that something that kind of um, that changes as you go through a course? Do you do you find that that resistance breaks down as they start to engage with the issues?
2: I I mean, I do. And, you know, again, I'm lucky enough that the students I teach in this environmental program, I I teach them for an entire year. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, by the end of the year, and this was even true when we were remote learning in April, May, Students were all on board with, like, we have to work together. We need, like, a collective voice. We need to come together to do things collectively. And they had begun to internalize what we had been working through the whole year. So I do think with time, it's, it's possible. And in fact, I think students are, they're joyful. Right, that mm-hmm. the coming together and problem solving together and not feeling isolated and like they each have to take on this problem as their own is just. I mean, I I hope it's a gift to them. I truly I do. Have, I
3: have Stephen. I have just got to say that that's an insight that has taken me a long time to get rid of my own individualism. That I've realized that when. What students need to do in classes is not learn about how bad the problems are. What students need to do is practice collectivity. And by the end of my, by the time my students had to go home from COVID and at spring break, I had my senior capstone. So four years with these students who have been practicing this stuff, thinking about the collective, dismantling their individualism, treating the classroom like a lab and doing all this stuff together. And all, And then when they left, I said to them, the paradise built in hell. Remember Rebecca Solnit. This is your chance. This is your capstone. This is not giving up your capstone. This is the most, the biggest test of what you've been learning of collective mutual aid. And half of them went off and just devoted themselves to the mutual aid efforts that are in their community because they knew this is what they were trained to do. And it it was, it was a gift to me because I didn't realize this was, I didn't realize that they were going to be tested so quickly and so intensely. (laughs) And I was really worried about them. You know, I really was worried. And I just kept saying, they know what they need to do. They've been, this is what we've been training for. So many of them did fall off the cliff, you know, but um, I was very impressed that the, the notion of collectivity is something that they find joy in. Exactly right, Stephen. This is where they're making their, they're making the worlds they want to live in. And that's why they find joy in it. They're not just sitting around waiting for it to happen.
1: Do either of you bring um, any kind of service learning component into these courses or or do you kind of more focus on let's let's kind of talk about these things and and theoretical elements?
3: Yeah, I think I personally think that you can't um, you, you can't do this stuff without some of that. And I was really reluctant to do service learning because it's not something that I had a background in. But I was super lucky to have a collaborator on our campus for in our center for community based learning who is willing to co-teach it with me. And so he co-teaches the Capstone, which is a service learning-based class. Mm. And so the students were already involved in a lot of projects, and many of them could go online virtual, and they are continuing to do service, even virtually. Mm.
0: Um, I want to jump back a little bit. Um, Sarah, you mentioned the Rebecca Solnit thing. I want to ask you guys both kind of... um, one, like what texts have you found most inspiring? And then also, which which texts have your students responded to the best?
2: Well, I was going to say Solnit <laughs> as well. I mean, I'll just share. Um...
0: You can say the same. Yeah,
2: no, I, yeah. <laughs> well, I was trying to think of something else to add in. But, um, you know, I'll share the so the the spring term of my environmental literature course this past spring. Um, basically, I threw out everything that I had thought we might do, given what was, what was happening. And basically, we started by saying, we're going to have one core text, and then this, this whole term is going to be student-driven inquiry and, and uh, student projects, working together remotely but collaboratively. And that text was Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark. And basically, the, the the task for students that term was find joy working together, make a difference in your community, however you define that. You know, whether that's the community of our school, the community of the town around our school, or the communities where you all are remotely. And uh, and I should say we had already read um, Paradise Built in Hell earlier in the year as part of a unit on environmental justice. So at this point things were already moving in that direction. Um, You know, I'll also say just in another context and a different kind of text, um, uh, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower Hmm. has been a really uh, important text for me to, to teach. And I think there's a lot in it that can lead to, you know, both grappling with what's happening in the world right now in students' own lives and then also envisioning other ways of, of being, I think. Hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah, I was, I'm so glad you brought up Parable of Sower. And I was going to say, similarly, along the same lines, is um, Adrienne Brown's Emergent Strategy has been the text that blew my mind recently and changed everything about my pedagogy. I read that book. And I ditched it. I mean, I've been reinventing myself ever since. And I I basically said, I have to get this for my students. So I buy it every year for my capstone students. I say, you have to read this book. And we just kind of read the book and figure out what to do from there. It's probably the most impactful book I have read and taught um, in recent years.
1: Are there any other? Um, just as, when you mentioned parable of the sower, I was trying to think because we've been talking so much about um, you know making them feel hopeful and, and being positive um, as they're working through these things. And I'm curious because um, you know just off the top of my head, it's I feel like a lot of the literature that's out there, the stories that are being told, are maybe a little bit more apocalyptic. They are a little bit more um, fear based. Um, and so I'm just curious, are there, can you think of any other uh, literary works that are maybe providing a little bit more of that hopeful um, perspective or that idea of, of, you know, maybe that collective of, you know, let's come together. I mean, cause that's really parable of the sower is, you know, this, this community building um, to get through this, this disaster. So I'm just curious if there's others that you can think of that's maybe putting you on the spot a little bit. So I apologize.
3: I confess that I don't teach literature strictly much anymore, and I teach mostly. I'm going to kick this one to Stephen because I bet he actually teaches literature. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I, um, I would say emergent strategy. That's the, that's my antidote. Um, Solnit, emergent strategy, and um, yeah, I think Parable of the Sword is a great example of, of a of literary, a literary positive story. But Stephen might have a better answer for that.
2: You know, part of my part of my dissertation research and what I was doing when I was at the University of Oregon as a PhD student was was really delving into Clify as a genre. Mm-hmm. That was a big part of just what I what I was doing. And I've sort of given up on your question, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Sorry, is that like I've given up actually looking for for those those texts? And I sure. I guess one answer would be get students to critique the dominant strains of apocalyptic or techno optimist Mm -hmm. futurist discourse, critique it, notice what's missing and then create their own cli-fi, create their Mm -hmm. own visions of the future, like address it as a gap kind of, and then give students the agency or the feeling of like, Oh, we're cultural agents. Um, I'm cribbing that term from Doris Summer's work, um, about cultural agency, but to, to think like, oh, I can make an intervention into the dominant discourse and create these stories. Um, you know, but it also occurs to me to, to turn to other, I guess other forms of literature, like poetry. Um, you know, one work that comes to mind is Brenda Shaughnessy's, um, recent book of poetry it's called the octopus museum and it's imagining i guess an apocalyptic future in which cephalopod overlords take over the planet and there's like a humor to it and and yet it's also very dark and i wouldn't say it's hopeful but it's like finding these texts that unlock students imaginations from Mm. the dominant ways that that i think they're taught to, to use their imaginations through you know, Hollywood blockbusters, through the apocalyptic discourse, through political discourse about the future. And so it's like whatever those texts can be that unlock them emotionally, I think is important. And poetry could be one. Speculative fiction could be another kind of text that does that, creating their own texts, um, the nonfiction works that Sarah was, was mentioning. Yeah. Yeah, and
3: I also just to sort of speak to that hope thing, I really like um, the critiques that we're hearing out of, coming out of a lot of folks doing affect and environmental literature, um, who are saying things that you know hope isn't the hope isn't the end game. Desire is a better affect for in the, unlocking that imagination that Stephen's talking about. Mm. And I, I also in my own coping strategies with myself have turned to poetry, and I've turned to spirituality, and I've turned to contemplative practices. And, um, one of the things that I have do in in that is accept the bad feelings, <laughs> get more comfortable with grief, you know? And so there's, there's more of a, for me, it's psycho- psychology or, or a spirituality that is helping me deal with apocalypse. Um, and, and I use that, I use that personal journey to help guide students and some for some that works and for some it doesn't, but um, it's less about trying to get away from the apocalypse than to sort of get more comfortable with it. Mm. Mm.
2: Your sorry, your mention of of delight or or desire, I guess, is that the term you use there? Desire, desire, desire. Yeah. You know, I've also think been thinking a lot about delight and joy. And so, Brandon, your question a moment, I need to think about it. But Ross, the work of Ross Gay, the book of delights um he's a a poet and his poetry as well is you know again it's not about getting away from the grief but it's learning to dance with the grief or in the grief um and you know another thing that occurs to me is is uh you know sarah you mentioned contemplative practice we also i also try to incorporate a lot of embodied practice into my climate change classes and that can be meditation yoga. Hikes together outside as a group as a class it could also be dancing, just like being joyful together in whatever way students want to be.
0: Mm. Mm. that sounds really great um so i'm I wanted to ask a little bit about kind of um this year's current context with the pandemic and everything moving online and i guess i'm I'm curious to know kind of how uh how those embodied practices translated to an online context and whether they were uh, you know affected in any way um I'd, I'd like you both to kind of reflect on as well um you know whether there is anything that has like that was a particular challenge with with teaching what you teach online but also whether the the context of the pandemic kind of sparked its own conversations because obviously there has been so many um, links made or like revelations through the pandemic that have links with um, climate change and the environment. And and I wonder how that kind of fed into your, your teaching and your discussions.
3: Um, I, I'll just jump in, Stephen, you can um, chew on it for a bit. Um, I'll see if I can come up with something, a good response. Thanks. That's a very good question. Um, I think that I'm really challenged by the online setting. I've never done it and I've never wanted to do it. And I'm sort of just hoping to kind of close my eyes and get through it, frankly. Um, but contemplative practices are actually, so I've started, I've actually increased my contemplative practices because they're online. And so I've, in a funny way, I think the, an- the little bit of the impersonal is helpful there. Um, it's, it's uncomfortable for students when I do, do meditation or, or moments of quiet with classes, many students find it uncomfortable. And if they find it uncomfortable online, they can just shut their video off and we can all just, you know, do our own thing. And it's, it's sort of the anonymity or the privacy allowed by online for turning inward is actually quite nice. And so Steven could maybe do a dance party, you know, and it's kind of better online, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think, I don't want people to see me doing a dance party. you know? So, you know, there's a certain permission or privacy that comes with, with this that I think is actually quite um, levels, levels, it levels people a little bit. It puts everybody on kind of the same playing field. There's obviously a lot of problems with it, but um, there's just some potential there too, I think. Uh, and, and yeah, the, the revelations between, You know, so I just wrote this book on climate anxiety and people keep saying, well, do you think climate is going to go on the back seat now that COVID's happening? And I keep saying, no, they're the same thing, right? Climate anxiety and COVID anxiety. COVID anxiety is climate anxiety. Young people have been sitting in that state of COVID anxiety as climate anxiety for a long time. And now just the rest of the people are catching up. And young people see the connections just fine. And young people know exactly that this is the the apocalypse happening. Um, So I think that the strategies around coping with COVID anxiety are exactly what young people have been asking for in their classes for a long time. We are just now finally realizing that this is going to be an existential, mental, emotional, spiritual journey as much as it is about getting tools or skills or you know, hard skills or whatever. And um, that's, a, that's a great reckoning. I think that's a real positive thing.
2: I think, Sarah, as you were describing that, thank you. I hadn't thought about that, about the dancing but I did have a lot of luck with online dance parties in my spring term class. And, and students, <laughs> students could shut their screen off, you know, the video off if they wanted, you know, my young son could join if he wanted to, it was, you know, it had this communal feel to it, but something that occurred to me when you were describing that is I think it's important to recognize that that is only possible if instructors give up control and this I'm circling back to the very first question you asked Gemma, about the leading, is that it really is about giving up control. And, and I should acknowledge that sometimes teachers can't do that because of institutional pressures. right So, But it's harder to do that if students, at least my students are worried about grades, are worried about all the things that students are worried about, you know. Um, you know, teachers who require students not to be in PJs for instance, or not, or to have their screen on, and should be looking the camera right into it. <laughs> uh, you know, we need to, teachers need to give up control during that time to make that, that possible. Um, you know, something else I was considering is, and this happened a bit in the spring, and I, I'm realizing I need to put more intention into it this fall, is that a huge part of the teaching I do at this environmental immersion program is about getting students you know, immersed in our place. You know, We're on about 250 acres of mixed woodlands and streams and fields, and they're doing ecology work outside. They're doing nature photography outside as a course. We're going on hikes to write poetry through the woods. So by the end of the year, we have this uh, shared enmeshment in a place and in the more than human world. And I think the key is how can I get students this fall when they're distant or when we're distant, um, if we're not back on campus, to be doing that in wherever locations they are and then be creating artifacts about their experience that they then share with the, with the community. So we're having these experiences of hopefully maybe some joy uh, experiencing the more than human world. But doing it in our own places and on our own time, and then figuring out how to create something um, communal out of that, there could be possibility there.
1: Yeah, that's that sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. So uh, it is time to to end on a roll. But uh, before we get to that, is there anything that either of you were were kind of hoping that we would discuss today, or, or really, you know, we're hoping to have a chance t- to share before we move on to that?
0: I want to jump in with okay. a one final oh, okay. question. In sure, fact, yeah. in that case, um, yeah. <laughs> I just Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about the digital platform that you've been working on, the uh, NX Terra Transformative Education for Climate Action? Because, yeah, that is obviously something that our listeners can engage with. Yeah. So it'd be good to hear a little bit more.
3: Yep. Yeah, so this was an initiative that was funded by the University of California's Office of the President. Through their carbon neutrality initiative project. So this is a huge amount of sort of resources put behind trying to get faculty engaged on ex- advancing and expanding climate education, in, in, a, in a word, in a some sentence. But this project was um, actually reached out across the Cal State-UC divide and collaborated between Cal State and UC faculty over the course of several years to develop um, best practices and outcomes and desires for how are we going to advance climate education beyond what is already happening. And over a course of several workshops, about five different workshops at different places in California with about 25 faculty per workshop. Um, I was the CSU lead on that with uh, my UC counterpart, a guy named John Foran, uh, who's a sociologist um, and works closely with Ken Hiltner and David Pello out of UC Santa Barbara. And he and I Convene these workshops and came up with this idea that what everybody really wants is a place where they can get resources to teach to do to improve their pedagogy. So Nextera, the platform we talked about, is the end result of that. Um, Richard Wydick was what our our other collaborator, and he developed the website. And through the course of one year with twenty or so faculty, we developed the content of that, and the content of that is supposed to be open access for anybody, even though it was developed by California faculty, it's meant for anybody to use. And the topics in that are curated by individual faculty based on kind of their pet passions. And so that's why Nicole Seymour and I developed a page of resources that are on um, emotion or affect in climate change. Um, But there's all kinds of things like teaching the campfire and um, um, this work on bending the curve that's happening through K through 12 and all kinds of resources on this website that are open access for teaching, and they're supposed to be really available and and easy to use for students too, and for K through 12, especially high school um, teachers. So even though it was generated out of the higher education model, there's a real sense of trying to make this democratized content for getting climate and sustainability, and there's a real central central focus on environmental justice and climate justice in that work and so there's the themes are around critical sustainability studies critical climate justice studies um, that kind of thing and it's still ongoing we're we're still moving it's gotten it had 2 years of funding and it's about to we're about to launch into the next round of funding to keep developing and curating pages and so we're looking for always to broaden the network and to have people take on the lead of curating a page on a topic that is of their interest that's relevant to that
1: Awesome. Yeah, we'll be sure uh to to uh post a link to that in the in the show notes for you too. So, yeah, check that out. Yeah, so actually one more question that that's kind of, you know, popped into our heads a, a little bit uh is um how can uh, you know maybe climate change education intersect with broader concerns for equity inclusion uh, in academic or educational in- institutions and maybe this re- you know relates back a little bit to what we've talked about earlier with um you know getting students to grapple with with you know uh, the racial implications and things like that, but maybe you'd like to speak a little bit more on 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 that as well.
3: Yeah, this is such a good question and again this goes it actually circles back to the students' leading thing. students are the ones demanding. That environmental courses and climate courses center social justice, so they got the memo that these two things are interconnected because they're experiencing that in their lives. And so, um, I had been doing environmental justice stuff in my own teaching, and like I said earlier, I that was the thing that students had the hardest time with. But increasingly, the, the more and more diverse our students are getting, the more that's sort of a, that's not necessarily what we're doing. We're now trying to decenter whiteness as a student. So if I assume that my students need to get, you know, informed about their privilege and complicity and forms of injustice, I am inadvertently centering my white students' voices and my white students' feelings. And so the challenge now, I think, is for educators to imagine, because it's true, that their students are no longer those students, that their students are Mm -hmm. experiencing things quite differently than a previous generation of environmental studies students. And so that's, that's really one of the big arguments I'd say we need to be Thinking about um, as educators, if your students are not the kind of old school environmental, you know, wilderness loving outdoor recreation type of white student, they're they're more you know the they they look like you know they're they're looking at the case studies of environmental injustice and saying that's my life. This is a very different um, pedagogy that we're called to do.
2: And I think also on the, the institutional level, something I've been kind of thinking about is the way in which. Um, sustainability as a discourse and a set of practices and how it's been sort of incorporated into the model of the neoliberal university or the neoliberal institution um, makes it seem very siloed sustainability from uh, equity and inclusion, but I would say it's siloed from anti-racist work. And so it's about sort of like maybe using climate education I would go farther and say climate justice education as a way to get rid of that, that morass of sustainability discourse and really think about as institutions or how can institutions grapple with, um, you know, their complicity in, in racist systems and, and in environmentally unjust systems or unsustainable systems. And that those two discourses need to be brought together, the environmental mm-hmm. and the anti-racist, um, at an inst- in the classroom, but also at an institutional level. <laughs> and again, students can lead the way in that. The divestment movement, um, other work that students have been doing to change the very institutions of which they are a part, which inspires me.
3: Yeah, and if you and if you take you know, you think of environmentalism as a form of white supremacy, it changes the conversation. So once you start to have that conversation, how is environmentalism an expression of white supremacy? Now the sustainability folks and the anti-racist folks can start to not be silent and have more of those conversations.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and I think too, I mean, one of the things at least that, that I try to do um, in, in getting students to understand that is. Broadening what we mean when we say environment, right? That a lot of times when they hear the word environment, um, you know, maybe they're thinking of environmentalism or nature or whatever the case may be, and it's it's understanding that it's it's a much much broader concept that includes urban spaces and um, and things like that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. So, uh I guess let's let's move on to uh let's end on a roll. So, I've got a 12-sided die here and we have 12 questions. We have two guests this week, so or this month, I should say. Uh so uh we're going to ask two questions but you'll both answer both questions. So, uh the first question is Oh, Gemma's here's go. Question number 1. Do you have a favorite word? <laughs>
3: I'm really upset that that'. Has <laughs> I was like, I don't don't have an answer for that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to come in here. I like full disclosure. That's, that's my question on the list, which if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that I'm like this word geek who, you know, does have a favorite word. And, and just last week I said to Brandon, we should probably take that question off the list because no one's going to have a favorite word apart from me. And he, and he said, no, let's keep it. And then what's your favorite word?
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll answer this one. My favorite word is cascade, um, for its me the meaning and the way that it sounds and that also so you know, obviously it's the falling, but that also links it to chance. So you know the word chance also means a fall, it's what falls and so I don't know, I just get all this like this chancey rushiness in the cascade and it's a waterfall and yeah, I don't know, it's just such <laughs> a beautiful word. Um <laughs> I love that we have our Oregon Cascades connection, Stephen
3: and I. so yeah. that that mm. does warm my heart. <laughs>
0: okay, so do you have yeah. one, Stephen? I'll you give
2: you. One? I mean, I'll give you the, This is not the question. I'm. I'll give you the word I've been thinking most about lately. Just as Great. a word, that's I that's don't awesome. know. It's, yeah, which is which is the word attention. And I've just been thinking about like attention and attending to and what it means to like, tend to students in the mm-hmm. classroom, how to get students to practice the arts of lively attention, wherever mm-hmm. they might be. And then how thinking through that maybe can get us to a place of, of tenderness with each other, which is another word that, that over the past few months has become important for me and thinking about what it is I I might do in a classroom, which is like, call, like bring more tenderness into the world. Like, and if that is a, a learning outcome for the end of the course and we achieve that, it seems like that that's pretty good right now.
3: Yeah.
1: That's, that's,
3: Love that's that. good.
1: <laughs> Sarah, do you want to, do you want to try and follow that with uh, a word you're thinking about right now? <laughs>
3: Can I, can I kick this one? Can I pass?
1: You absolutely can. You absolutely can. All right. So question number two is going to be. All right. Well, here, this should be an easier one. It's actually question number two. Uh, What's an outdoor space that's important to you?
3: All right. So I had to say, um, I did have an answer for that one. And that is, (laughs) I really love sitting in my garden. I I, I thought I sort of racked my brain for like some beautiful other place like the beach or some mountaintop or some some space out there but I frankly especially in the pandemic have been really enjoying and relishing what J. Drew Lanham calls the intensification of the nearby and this is the same thing that he was talking about how people have done a lot more bird watching recently and the sort of Realizing that you know you can travel around the world to see great things, or you can notice the dewdrops on the front of your lawn, right? Um, so this notion of turning turning that fresh eye on the stuff that's immediate to us has been really valuable to me as a way to as a refuge for my stress and anxiety and worry and anger and fear about everything that's happening. And so I would I would say, give me any old spot to sit my butt down in my garden, and I'll be happy.
1: Stephen. I think,
2: you know, my my instinct was the same and I think it's because of the pandemic and, hmm. you know, I really haven't gone anywhere in six months and the woods behind the environmental center where I live, which is, I should say, we're in smack in the middle of like a suburb between New Haven, Connecticut and Hartford, Connecticut in between two highways, I-91 and the Merritt Parkway and yet there's this little woodland here and i have gotten to know it really well over the past the past months and you know notice things about it um mm. that i had never noticed before and I, yeah it's been great a little bright spot <laughs> yeah you
0: know. wonderful okay well it is now time to wrap things up. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. It's been a really wonderful yes, discussion. Yes, thank you. Um, can you just tell us where people can find out more about you if you have personal websites or social media or any publications that you want to highlight um, so people can can look you up if they want to?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, my website is com. And I'm on Twitter at sjacquetray, and you can buy my new book, A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety: How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet, from the University of California Press. Great.
2: And you're, I'm on Twitter at Uh and my email, which is online, is you can email me ssipristine at um, And I love talking pedagogy and, and talking with teachers.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks again for being here. Uh, make sure you check out those things. Check out their, their publications. Uh, reach out to them if you want to talk more about teaching. And uh, thank you all for listening. This has been Asley's EcoCast. If you have an idea for an episode, you can reach out to us, uh, whether it's to have a guest on or you yourself have an idea for a show. Um, you can reach us at our email, uh, asley.ecocast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at at asley underscore ecocast Uh, until next time bye
3: stay safe all